Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. Uh, This week, I'm joined by Alyssa Hessler. Alyssa is a photographer, a photography educator, a author, a just kind of a creative monster, really. Uh, she's based up in Maine, originally from Humboldt County, California, and she kind of made, I think about 10 years ago, she made this switch from like this corporate big city life to a more rural kind of agrarian existence, uh, on the other side of the country from where she was living, uh, over in Maine. And she is the uh, founder, the creator, the driving force behind an enterprise called Urban Exodus. And it's uh, been going on for about a decade now. And that is a kind of an information hub uh, and a creative hub chronicling the stories of people who have made similar life switches, you know, where they've They've moved from kind of the hustle and bustle of a modern urban lifestyle and moved to more kind of rural existences and maybe a little bit more uh, focus-based lifestyles. I originally came into contact with Alyssa when she reached out about me being on her podcast, uh, also branded as Urban Exodus, and man, had a just super fun and kind of like long-form convo, and uh, she was telling me about some of the projects she was working on. And I told her, I was like, hey, man, you know, if you ever want to come down here and uh, go catfishing or go duck hunting or something, I'd love to have you as a guest. So it was kind of fortuitous, actually, because then a few months later, she's now working on a television pilot and she's been traveling through the Midwest uh, with a film and uh, audio crew. And her last stop on that trip was here just this past weekend down to Brinkley, Arkansas at Black Duck Revival. We ran limb lines and trout lines and caught catfish and recorded a podcast and filmed a bunch of stuff. And so I'm really uh, hopeful that all that's going to work out for her and that hopefully here soon, you know, uh, you'll be able to see her uh, television show on a streaming service or cable or however it, however it works out. But uh you know, in addition to running this brand, Urban Exodus, like I said, she's also a uh, working photographer, kind of specializing in portraiture, and she's uh, also a partner in an enterprise called Hessler Creative. That's her and her husband, uh, Jake, who specializes in landscape photography, and they kind of do these like, you know, <laughs> it's like Black Duck Revival style uh, education camps, right, where people, I think they come to their farm there in Maine, uh, from all over the world. They have like an international clientele. And they take them to photography school, right? And teach them their methods and uh, impart some of their expertise. And those are really, those are in high demand. And these folks are, uh, you know, known and respected in the industry uh, as experts in their field. So I was so happy to be able to sit down and have a conversation kind of at the end of a very long, somewhat arduous, incredibly hot weekend. And towards the end of this, I felt myself just like my brain was at the end of its, its functional use for, for that day. So uh, I don't know, man, maybe it, maybe it devolves there at the end, but I think it was a pretty rad conversation. And I'm so excited for you guys to get to meet Alyssa Hessler. Hey folks, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week I find myself back at the Black Duck Revival Lodge here in Brinkley, Arkansas. And I'm joined by one Alyssa Hessler of the great state of Maine, uh, formerly of Humboldt County in California, who has been here with a very fancy production crew, a videographer with a space suit, uh, gimbal type situation here, carrying his camera 
and uh, my new best friend Owen, the sound engineer, who we bonded over um, nerd stuff, (laughs) Princess Mononoku and Star Trek: The Next Generation, and yeah, you got a shout out, dog. And uh, yeah, we just we've been catfishing and working on. I mean, can we talk about what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So a pilot for uh, a show you're putting together uh, underneath the Urban Exodus brand, which is how we first came across each other when uh, I was a a guest on your podcast. So, yeah, man, this is this is like one of those internet friend deals, and then like you finally meet in real life, and it's it's man, it's been a it's been a real blast, dude. And like, it's been incredibly hot. <laughs> really like, hot. Brutally, like 100 degrees, 101, 114 heat heat index. I've had, I've destroyed my boat motor. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I curled a stainless steel prop. I snapped the motor mounts, like the cast <laughs> metal motor mounts. Halfway through the trip, I borrowed a 30-pound uh trolling motor from the <laughs> guy two, yeah tony the guy two doors down and like a weak battery this morning uh, but we did we managed to catch some catfish and man yeah we just been hanging out so hard i didn't even really do the thank you for being here <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure so uh yeah but yeah so we caught some catfish and been filming stuff and i will say it's my first time ever fishing in my whole life yeah that's wild it that's is wild. Real wild uh but yeah, we caught we caught like you know good representative catfish. Caught what four blues in one channel, and flayed them up and just ate a bunch of hush puppies and fried catfish and uh, boudin and uh, do we have something else? We've been munching on watermelon and the restorative life giving watermelon. Uh, it's like solid solid state Gatorade, like just fill you full of electrolytes when you're dying out in the sun. But uh. Yeah, so what do you think? Is this your first time to Arkansas? I don't think it's my first time to Arkansas. I've driven through Arkansas before, but it's my first time actually like landing in a place sure. and meeting people and um, paying attention, if that makes sure, sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been really amazing, even though it's 104 degrees and I live in Maine. And so a hot summer day is like 80 degrees. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're from Maine and then uh, the camera guy and the sound guy are both from Minnesota. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm just watching human beings melt. I mean, dude, I'll tell you what, dude, I, I destroyed some shirts, like just soaked them through. I think that your body, it takes like maybe a week or two weeks to... Uh, acclimatized to a new place and environment. When I lived in New Orleans, it took me about that long. And then I was like, oh, this is just what hot is. And then, but we haven't had that that chance. We've only been, I don't know. I think this whole trip, we've been nine days. And all of those days, I have just like sweated through everything that I brought with me. Well, I mean, look, I live here and this is miserable. (laughs) You know, like this is just kind of anything over... I feel like 93 is my threshold and then anything over 93 starts to become because it's also like 93 and just brutal humidity. So then it starts to become endurance. Like everything, there was a window I saw in the truck today I saw and it was like, it said like 93 degrees and I was like, dude, it does feel manageable now. When you get over that, when you start hitting 100, 101, we're like, we were out on that lake. You know, I felt cooked. Yeah. I was like cooked from the inside. It took a couple hours to. I saw some red on my, my brown arms. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was rough. But so anyway, I'd love to talk about, you have this podcast, you're, you're, so you're a professional photographer. You and your husband are like teaching these, I mean, kind of, I don't want to like in the same realm as like Black Duck Revival, right? Like you're teaching, having these kind of immersive uh, photographic educational experiences, like teaching people landscape photography. Uh, you have this podcast that I'm going to let you describe uh, what the impetus for it is. And now you're working on this videography project. So, uh, yeah, like what do you do all day? Like what's, what are you up to? Um, I mean, yeah, so I I left – 
Seattle. I met my husband the day he signed his mortgage in Maine. And I was on one trajectory of life that I thought was like the right path for me. It was like, get the best possible job you can that makes the most possible money and kind of sell yourself to, uh, (laughs) to plug into the corporate ladder and buy that security and stability that I think we all feel like we want. And, um, and so I was working a job in the corporate world and it was really the golden handcuffs. And I, I dreamed all the time of like leaving and being like saving up enough money so I could like, I, I actually like whiteboarded this out with a coworker of mine. I could just like wrote, he was like, you need to know what your life, (laughs) what you want in life. Cause he saw how miserable I was in my job. And he was like, all right, let's just figure out, you just tell me what you want. And I said, you know what? I really like, if I really thought about what I wanted to do, I want to live on like a blueberry farm in upstate Washington and just like live like a intentional life, but it felt so intangible. And so I met my husband and, and then that really just like, just like happened for me because he had already bought a place in Maine. He was already set up there. He was from that community. And five months later I quit my job, which was like a big scary risk for me. And I like moved across the country for this guy I met. And it was so hard for me to adapt in that environment. Like it was, it was like, I felt like a really a fish out of water. And I realized how much I had been ingrained that like my worth was what I did for work. And so people would ask me like, what do you do? And I'd be like, say what I used to do, you know, just be like, Oh, this is, this is what I'm worth. It's like this one thing that I reached that I like grabbed. What did you do before? I like ran product launches for a tech company. Like I would travel every week, you know, and I would put on these big events so that people would be encouraged to trade in their cell phones every six months, you know, like didn't feed me at all. Like if I think from a value system perspective, it like honestly felt awful. Like it wasn't something that I wanted people to do, but yeah, so I moved to Maine and it was really hard and I looked online for websites or, or stories of people that like had made that transition and how they did it and how they like, you know, found work, how they found meaning in their life. I felt like everything that was out there were like these very bucolic interpretations of what that transition would be like. Ooh, what's that word? I haven't heard that before. Bucolic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's like the over romanticizing of country living. It's like an actual word. Oh, bucolic. Dude, I'm going <laughs> to... Look, look for that in the next article. <laughs> so I just felt like that was, it was either that or is this other like stereotype of like scary, you know, maybe like backwoods people like playing banjos or something. And those are just all these like <laughs> weird in, internalized stereotypes that people have. And so I just started photographing stories because I wanted to build community and I wanted to learn from people. And I just, I'm just interested in that. And so it was just always a side project that I did. And whenever we would travel for work or, or travel for vacation, I would, I had like a spreadsheet of all these people that like, I'd love to just go meet them and, you know, hear their story and see what they're doing and take pictures of them and, um, and, and like tell their story online. And, I did it because, you know, initially it was just a curiosity for me. It was wanting to build community beyond where I had settled and wanting to just have like different, different perspectives. And I know that, you know, that's something that you strive for too, just hearing different people's stories, because I think that that makes your life make more sense. And then it also, um, just makes you more open-minded. And so I started meeting with people and every single person that I met with, I was just like, Oh, I fucking love this. I love this so much. It's like such a gift. I learned so much from people. I learned like, Oh, this is, this is when you're planting these things or this is what you do with this or, Oh, this is how hard it is to start a farm. Like from scratch, if you don't have any infrastructure, you don't have any like generational family wealth and this is what it takes to do this. And I just like, I learned so much from the people that I met and I put those stories online 
so that I could create basically what I was searching for when I was in my corporate job, thinking that like, that was my dream life. But like, I didn't know how to get to that dream life. Like that dream life was only attainable in retirement. If I did the things that like people told me to do to save enough to like move to the country and finally live my dream. And so because I felt like I got a shortcut to that, I wanted to create something where people could like go and feel like, oh, these voices in my head, they're telling me like, I don't, this is not right for me because I was feeling that in my life that they could be validated by reading other people's stories and that those stories could actually provide real tangible information where they could be like, okay, here's how I plan for this. Here are the things that I need to think about. (laughs) Here's like what I should like get my ducks in a row for no pun intended to like, you know, figure out, okay, what's the best way to feel the most secure in my job? Like what community should I look for? Like how many times should I visit? Just like things that I always kind of wondered. And, uh, and so, yeah. And that I just did that on the side because I loved it. And like, it, it probably helped because it emboldened me to start my own business. So like we started a design firm and I started doing photography and freelance writing and it like really created a community, not only for like, for just people that I loved and cared about, but also like potential business partners and, and like, yeah, it just like created a lot of in opportunity and community out of just this one thing, a curiosity. And, uh, and so, yeah. And then I decided in 2000 and I want to say like 2019, November of 2019, I decided that, uh, I had this woman, (laughs) it's amazing story. Like she found a book that I had written in a bookshop in Seattle, which is where I had moved from. Yeah. So yeah, we, (laughs) what's the name of that book that you wrote? Uh, It's called ditch the city and go country. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) that's the name of the, I didn't mean to laugh. (laughs) No, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like, um, it's, it's like how I can't, it's hard because I, it is a helpful guide. Like so many people have emailed me after they've seen the book and they're like, Oh, this was very helpful. It's very practical and like not a work of literary genius. And I don't feel particularly proud of it because I was super pregnant when I wrote it and my, my, I got really sick and I only have five months to write it in. And so like, I know that we've talked about this, but like writing is so hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. And uh, and I am someone that likes to kind of revise and stew on things. And I didn't have any of that time. It was just like, get it out. Because <laughs> like I'm about to have a baby. But uh, but anyways, I digress. Like it it, she found me because she found the book and the book spoke to her because she was working um, in Los Angeles, she wanted to be a screenwriter, but like, it was like, here's the path that you have to take in order to be a screenwriter. you got to go and you got to work for an agency and then you got to work your way up. And it's, it's, it's a really toxic industry. Like a lot of industries that people work in, right? Like toxic work culture is normalized. And so she read the book and decided to move to Maine. And then she started helping me. Like she reached out and was like, Hey, she started working at a, at a place where I taught photography called main media workshops. And that kind of gave me my start in teaching and she got a job there and she came up to me after I had done like a lecture and she was like, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, like I moved here because I found your book and I'm so happy. And like, she met, she met her partner. Her name is Simone. His name is Simon. They are like, could not be like, Oh, is this your, that's my producer. producer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like she, I kept hearing stories like that of like, I, I moved because I found this website and it, and and it emboldened me to like, listen to the voices in my head saying, there's a different path for me and here's how I do it. And like, there's nothing that like feeds me more than that. Like knowing that even in some small way, like some weird side project that I do because I love it is making people listen to their intuition and like try to take steps towards something that they really want to do. Like there's nothing that I would want to do more in the world. And, uh, that's big shit, man. Like, if, I mean, you're really talking about like 
you know, dare I say it, like inspiring people, right? Yeah. Uh, that's like, that, that's crazy. You know what it makes me think of is, uh, and I was telling you about this friend of mine, Rue Mapp, who started this organization, Outdoor Afro. But that's like kind of how she started. Like she started this blog and it was like this critical mass that kind of formed behind it. And now she's like the CEO of this like, you know, pretty impressive nonprofit. And she's like doing like, you know, like taking Oprah out hiking and like meeting the president and like doing commercials and stuff. It's like pretty wild. I mean, I think like probably it's, it's like that, that, path towards purpose you know and I don't know if this is like fully my purpose but when something feels so good like you can't you can't not do it yeah when like like this has just always been a side project you know like this has just been this thing that like I love and I pack it into things like my husband probably like two three years ago was like are we ever gonna like go on vacation where we don't have like a detour like three hours to a, you gotta go meet they, somebody yeah and i'm like what uh, watch our daughter and like i'm gonna or like i i'll have my daughter on my back and i'll be photographing and stuff so yeah i just when when you can't not do it there's got to be something there and i think that like along your journey you meet people that like reroute you towards like something that is even more towards it you know like you find your your people along your journey <laughs> yeah sure. and I, and like definitely Simone was one of those people and like I even feel like you are one of those people like, oh I'm flattered when, yes. when you're doing stuff that like <clears throat> is true to you and like you are trying to do good and you're like trying to like I don't know I just I think that like people absorb that and they feel it and they want to help you. And yeah, totally, man. Like people read authenticity and like good intention and yeah, yeah. They like, they like to plug into that by being a part of it somehow. Yeah. And, uh, and I've never really experienced that because like I've been in industries that are like kind of fun to be in and cool and teamwork environment, but I've never like been able to just be like, this is what I, I feel compelled to do this versus like, I have to do this to get the paycheck. And so I think that that, that has helped me towards that. But I don't know. I just, I love this so much. I would do it for the rest of my life for nothing. And yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, I, 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 I'm going to make a prediction. You're going to have a, you're going to have a successful and fancy television show. Uh, dude, what do you think? Let's tell these folks about, so there was just like this, just weird stuff happened, uh, on this fishing trip, right? So you came up here. I told you, I was like, man, best fishing be like in the spring, right? But you're running all your stuff together. So this is when you could come down. So I said, yeah, we'll make a go of it. So it's just been brutally hot, brutally dry, water super low, and all these kind of natural rivers and bayou systems, you know, the cash and stuff here in East Arkansas. And just fishing's been hard, 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 hard. And, uh, but whatever, man, I was like, dude, we, I was, I was going to come up here like kind of half a day before and scout a couple bodies of water and just find out where to look best. And I go to just test start my motor, but. I packed up the whole truck and right before I left and it wouldn't start and then it wouldn't start and it wouldn't start. And then like four hours later I had like taken the whole engine apart and like cleaned the carb and blown everything out with a compressor and sprayed carb cleaner and swapped out the spark plugs and had to take the starter motor off to get to the carburetor and then had to take the shield off. I mean, it's just, a, I've, I've never, I don't understand why they put, it's put together this way. Like to take the starter off and to take the carb off. I had to use six different size wrenches and ratchets, but whatever. And then I get it back together and I hit the electric start and I could, it sounded different. I was like, dude, that thing's going to start. Right. And I ran and I turned the water on. Uh, so I wouldn't run it hot. And then I looked down and I had forgot to put the linkage back on, uh, the little arm coming off the carburetor. So like, it's just like a coat hanger got wrapped up in the flywheel. Yeah. And so then I like rip, got in there and ripped that out 
and I, I broke my last motor too. So I've got like a spare motor that's got parts on it. So I went and took the linkage off of that and put it together, got it running, whatever. Finally got up here, kind of running behind, but everything's going good. You guys get here, kind of split up. You're getting your uh, B-roll and talking to Patsy Arnett up there at the convention center here in Brinkley. And uh, that's right, convention center in Brinkley. And I'm like out setting some lines and we're going to go do some stuff. And we get in the bayou and everything else goes good, right? Like I'm getting, it's hot, but I'm showing you what's up. Beautiful. And then right, I mean, we're like within sight of my truck. And there was a spot we had gotten stuck real bad and like got high centered. So I was like, man, I'm just going to power through here and get us out. And man, I hit, dude, fuck. I like snapped the cast motor mount. Like, you know, it's like uh, right kind of cast pig iron or whatever, I guess. And yeah, just snapped in half. The motor like falls down. It's just hanging on by this bolt. Uh, oh, it's just a nightmare, right? But, but we got lines out, so we still have to get back the next day and check them. So whatever. Today was just goofy. It's like me driving around in reverse, like with my legs wrapped around this motor, trying to hold it on. Just arduous to say the least, right? Uh, I had to collect myself at one point. Because, like, an, an old lady that had kind of talked some trash to us at the boat ramp. <laughs> <laughs> we got stuck again today, like, right in front of her. And she just, like. She was judging a little bit. Yeah. I, I had to, like, <laughs> climb out of the boat and, like, balance myself on some uh, old broke-off logs, like, in I the bayou. I think you held it together really well, I mean, honestly. I was. I'll tell you what. Old Jonathan would have flipped his shit, man. Because I was right there on the edge. I was like, dude. I, I just want to be out of this. I want to be. <laughs> I want, to be, I want to be in air conditioning. Yeah, I wanted to be in air conditioning. That's what it came down to. But, man, caught good catfish. Uh, and, yeah, I think made like a made a good meal, man. You did you did a fantastic job filleting them. And, uh, so it's kind of interesting because there's not most of the people that I, I'm interviewing on this podcast, right? Most of them have some sort of. Uh, relationship with hunting right or like pretty deep outdoorsiness or whatever and then yesterday when you were like i've never gone fishing in my entire life and i was like really like <laughs> i didn't even know that was a thing that you had never like just never never had like a mickey mouse rod and tossed nope. it that's wild uh so like now you're in this building that's like i was telling you i was like i think there might be too much taxidermy in here now like <laughs> i've got all these uh animal facsimiles hanging on the walls. Feels homey to me. I mean, well, I'm glad to hear that. It's, <laughs> I spent a lot of time here. It's kind of like my second home. Uh, but I, I do wonder, so, you know, you're, you're kind of deeply immersed in this, uh, not bucolic, but, you know, like kind of what, semi-agrarian lifestyle. You said you're living on like 18 acres, right? Yep. Uh, and you, you're doing like, kind of gardening videos and so, i mean you got your hands in the dirt you're doing this stuff you just had an introduction to fishing uh i wonder are you are you interested in like the idea of kind of completing that that cycle a little bit more intimately like you know maybe because you were telling me oh dude i'll just tell the audience so Alyssa's got what was described to me as large numbers of turkey on her property. So many turkeys. And this was, this was whole weekend was worth it for getting permission to turkey hunt. Yep. Anytime. Uh, but I mean, you've never been tempted to like go out there and try and get a turkey or one of these deer that's running around. Well, or? we talked about this on my podcast, but there's like, there's that fear of like entering a new thing and not having like anyone there to guide you or mentor you in those spaces. And so, I don't know. I just felt like nobody offered <laughs> to yeah, ever yeah. take me there. So, like, it wasn't something that I was seeking out myself. But uh, I think, you know, even just doing the project that I've been doing for 10 years, like, there's so many people that reconnect to their food sources and reconnect to, like, foraging and hunting Wait, and fishing. Wait, so has, has it had the title Urban Exodus for 10 years? Yeah. That I didn't. Man, I did not realize that you've been doing it that long. Yeah, I started in like I started photographing in 2012 when I moved to Maine, 
And then the website went live in 2015. Wild, man. So it just like... It that was, makes me feel way better. Like I'm not as far behind as I thought I was. You are definitely not far behind. <laughs> not at all. I would say you are killing it. <laughs> oh, uh, ba-doom, boom, ching. <laughs> but, but yeah, so... I mean, would you, with mentorship or with the availability, is it something you think you would try? I would be interested in, in experiencing it too because I don't know, like I don't eat very much meat anymore, but if I do eat meat, it's usually sourced from like my community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's no, um, you know, no judgment on anybody that gets it from other sources, but that's just what I've chosen. Sure. And, uh, and like, I think that hunting and fishing is like a reconnection to who we all, like to a certain degree, all were, we were hunters and gatherers. And I don't know. I just feel like food tastes so much better since I started growing it. Like I never grew my own food before I moved to Maine. I probably could have, like I lived in an apartment building that had a little green space. I probably could have asked somebody to like put in a raised bed and start to grow my own food, but it just felt like it wasn't like, I didn't know how to do it. And so it was too scary to do it. Sure. And so I think that like having the opportunity, like when, when we spoke on the podcast and you were like, yeah, come, like, come, I'll, I'll do that for you. I was like, really? Cause nobody's ever offered that. And I'm super interested in knowing what that's like. And, uh, and so I don't know, I'm just someone that likes to, to try things and also likes to know things. And I feel empowered by what we did the last two days. And it takes away some of the detachment. So many people are detached from where their food comes from now. You know, like my interaction with fish is going to a fish store and buying it. And I don't know, it just tastes like that catfish was delicious. It just that's, that's like better. particularly good catfish. Though, too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, like the whole thing you did a good, like I said, you did a good job filleting it. There's a lot of people that would be, I think they'd be creeped out to even do that. You know? Uh, I mean, it was like, it was hard for me when I first started. Like I remember, I remember when I first started processing deer and I, like maybe I don't know if everyone has this problem, but like I had a real problem with um, like cutting out the butthole. Like it was just hard for me, and I was afraid I was going to cut into it and all that stuff, you know. And like then I think you, I probably have a hard time with that too. <laughs> well, you know what's weird, man? You get to a point where you're like, stop being so grossed up, and you just kind of like grab it with your thumb and your forefinger and you cut its butt out. Uh, and you know, and like pull it through and, and keep on moving on. But I mean, there's definitely a learning curve. I think that what would be super cool is if you spent like the next, you know, 12 months or 10 months or something, just, you know, getting yourself comfortable with like shooting a shotgun and then, uh, I'll come out and we'll do like a pay to play, right? Like we'll get you on a turkey and you kill a turkey on your property, and then uh, and then I can do some hunting or something. But dude, I bet you would be, I bet you would be stoked on that, and especially like right there where you live, birds you've watched. Uh, I mean, you know, you got it's you and your husband and your your daughter, man. Like you'd get a ton of meals off of one big gobbler. Like, you'd get a ton of meals. They're beautiful. I mean, I can't even describe. I keep talking about turkeys on this podcast because I'm just enamored with them. Uh, but, yeah, man, and it'd be, like, great taste in meat, and you could share it with people that maybe are, like, weirded out by hunting, but, like, <clears throat> everyone's got a familiarity with turkey, so they're not yeah. they're not as weird about it, you know? The gateway meat. Yeah, it is, man. <laughs> that first one's free, right? It's like a gateway, like, the the if you – start a homestead or a farm, your gateway animal is a chicken. So sure. you get a chicken and then it's like, you're going to have a goat. Yeah. But cow. like that definitely wild game is wild game. Turkey would be that man. Cause mm -hmm. it's like you give anybody like fried Turkey nuggets and excuse me. They're, uh, they're into it. it there's, there's also like, there's kind of no barrier to entry taste wise. Because uh, like I've heard that wild turkey's dry. Am I wrong, or is it just the way that you prepare it? I think it? it's yeah, it's just people doing it 
wrong. Doing it wrong. Yeah. Right? Like if you, it would be dry. You know, that's a, so that's a deal. So I do it just like I do other birds, right? So I'm going to pluck it most of the time. Uh, but I'm going to pluck the bird. I'm going to take the breast off. Underneath that will be tenders. So I'll take big turkey tenders. So then I have two turkey tenders. Uh, I'll go through and I'll take off, you know, the thigh, the drum, both sides. You get two of those. Then I'll open it up. They got a big old gizzard, heart, liver, uh, gizzard, turkey neck for sure. Uh, you know, that's like a big southern thing, smoked turkey necks. You like use it for beans or greens or something. Uh, and then the turkey carcass. Uh, if I think if you took that whole turkey, and I've not... Uh, I got a buddy, Martin Phillip, who's been on the podcast, and he cooked a turkey, this a wild turkey this way, and he said it came out good. But I'm normally weird, and maybe it's because I deal with waterfowl so much, but, you know, like you cook a... Breast meat is not fibrotic, right? Relatively tender on any kind of bird. The leg and thigh, that's why you get dark meat, white meat, right? Now, you get dark meat on a chicken that lives its whole life in some hell hole that, where it walks around, you know, four feet maybe. You get a turkey that can, like, cover 10 miles in a day, man. Like, you're talking about thick, big, yolky tendons. So, I mean, it takes a long time to, to break down. So, I think if you just try to grill a wild turkey thigh, it would be inedible. You really need, like, a long, slow... Like a brisket roast. Yeah, basically. and low, like in a in a, a a cooking technique that involves moisture, right? Mm -hmm. So, like a braise would be the thing, or like, you know, a, I mean, that's essentially what a crock pot is—is is a braise. So, like, if you seared it off a little bit and threw it in a braise with some stock, it'd be fire, right? And like, do carnitas with that dark meat or something, and dude, just sitting here thinking about turkeys. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that would be, I think that would be a great gateway for you. And maybe you only want to do it once and maybe, maybe you just, you know, it turns into a thing where like once a year you like go out and get a turkey and like you eat half of it and save the other half for Thanksgiving. But dude, it would hit different, you know, it really yeah. would. You'd have that big, big, beautiful tail fan you could put on your wall and, uh, I mean, you said, um, when I spoke to you, like the first time that we talked you said that hunting was kind of like about participating in your life in sure. a way. And I think that that, I think that's the intrigue for me because I think we, there are so many ways that we don't have to participate in our lives anymore because of convenience. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, they're like easy pathways towards things. And I feel, and I know a lot of other people feel this way too, like this real need, this real desire, this real hunger to reconnect to like our roots well, I mean, I think you're, I, I actually think like you're built for it, right? Like people are, I mean, I'm not the only, everyone's been saying this for 30 years, but like you're really not designed to sit in a little box and then drive to get in another little box with wheels and then drive that box to another box and then sit in that box all day, right? Like you're supposed to run around, you're supposed to move, you're supposed to get out of breath. You're supposed to sweat, you know, your legs are supposed to get tired, like all that stuff is supposed to happen. Now, people change and situations change and, you know, I mean, I'm glad that I live in a house and I don't live up in a tree somewhere, right? Like hiding from the saber-toothed lions that are <laughs> roaming the prairie. But everything you got, everything you're made up of is telling you to like run around and do stuff and, I mean... Shit, I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot lately is even the idea of play after childhood. I've really kind of shirked it for a long, long time. And then the other day I was like, uh, I started riding a bike around uh, recently. And at first it was like real motivated, but like, I just got to stay active, you know, and so fun. Yeah. But then I started, I like rode down a hill and I, I was like, like wee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like, and I was just by myself because it was like 98 <laughs> noon. Everybody else is at work or not dumb enough to be out in the park. Right. And I'm just like riding around out in the sun going like sweating. And I've been wearing these 
button-up shirts <laughs> recently, right? So I got the wind blowing through my shirt. I got my legs out like when I was a little kid. And it just kind of struck me that uh, – it struck me that that's – there's a reason that that, like, is so fun and feels so rad, right? It's like maybe I'm supposed to be doing that. Like maybe I'm supposed to still be, like – going wee every once in a while we're basically like primed to not do that like it's like being an adult like this is what you do now this is the next phase this is the thing you know there are these like narrative pathways that that our society deems as like this is success this is you know this is what your value is this is how you do that and like there are certainly non-conformists to that um but there's there's so much I just, I feel this because it only recently happened back to me, like that flow state that you feel in certain things, like that, that thing that you do, that when you do it, you like lose track of time. Yeah. Sure. Getting in the zone. Yeah. Getting in the zone. You know, for some people it's music and for some people it's like painting something or art. A lot of times it's a creative pursuit and there are so many different things that could be deemed creative. But like, as we get older, people tell you to be practical and like push you, like pull you away. If you can't make money from it, then it's not worth your time. And like I did that with music. Like I loved, I loved singing, loved playing music. But it, I was like, I wasn't going to make a living from it, you know? So I gave up on those dreams and I, I, I like went the practical route towards the corporate environment. And I just recently started playing music again and it's super... <laughs> it's super silly we just play covers and it's me and a bunch of dads but it's so fun and it like makes me it's the wee <laughs> you know yeah. i play music and i like leave and i'm lighter and i've forgotten about my you know any hard things that i had in the day and like it feels lucky because i teach photography for some people photography is their we you know yeah. for some people hunting is their we right like yeah tons of people yeah, yeah. and so like to be able to remind people that like this is what you love and like <laughs> just reconnect them with it, like get them excited about it and be like, you need to make more time for this. That's exciting because we squash that in our society. I don't know. Yeah, no. Uh, I, I've really been thinking about it and talking about it with my wife a lot. Uh, I feel like folks there's like this little window just the last couple of years. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not really trying to talk about like how we're all so divided or whatever, <laughs> but like just, you know, shit's been kind of gnarly the last couple of years. And I think I saw a lot of people who had like played the game the way they told you to. Right. And then COVID hit. And then they like, where am I going to get money from? Where am I going to get food from? Like, how am I going to keep my house? Like, just they hit this terror state, right? Yeah. And kind of like we discussed uh, through your project, learning how to do, like, learning how to, like, work with my hands, right? Like, fix stuff and build stuff and cook food and, like, hunt and fish and forage and all that stuff. That makes me feel way less panicked. It's it's not about being like some prepper that's like, I've got 15 years of dried beans. In yeah. My, you know what I mean? If I eat one mountain house a day, I can survive for 10 years. <laughs> it, it, it's not that. It's just like, like I kind of got to a point where I'm like, I'll be all right. Like, if I'm 50 years old and shit starts going awry, like, I can go wash dishes or uh, dig ditches or... And I think I can still do, I'll still be able to do that like when I'm 50, right? Uh, or maybe I'll write an article or maybe I'll write a book or maybe I'll do a cooking seminar. Like, I don't know what I'll do necessarily, but I am, I am done. Like giving the best of myself to other people, like for some weird transactional you know, process where like they don't really give a shit about me. Like I'm a cog in the wheel. Like, and I'm not even, it's not even about being mad at the system or the game. It's not about hating the, I don't hate the player. Like I hate the game. Right. And yeah. so I'm just like, dude, I'm, I'm just not going to be in this game anymore. Uh, and I'm making some declarative statement about that. And you'll, you'll probably see me 
like in a Liberty Statue of Liberty costume, like next tax season, like trying to make money for my family, (laughs) like (laughs) waving at people on the side of the road. But I mean, I just think people realize they had some, maybe folks realize they had some options or they were, maybe they realized they were really grateful for what they did have. Like that, what seemed like not enough was, was really what was important when everything else was taken away. Right. I'm just going to completely shift because I just, I, I kind of have this weird interest in Maine, right? So, <laughs> so you've been there for like 10 years, mm-hmm. right? And you came from a very different place, right? You came from Northern California. But so I have this impression of Maine as like a small place, lots of rural, lots of woods. Like, uh, I guess my impression of, like Yankee puritanical rednecks, you know, cloistered communities, you know, I don't know, ladies in white collars. I don't know what I think about men, right? <laughs> but it's like actually really intriguing to me. Uh, it it seems like a it seems like a a place that's very decidedly northern, but that maybe has a lot of the resiliency that I personally associate with like small places in the South yeah, and, and maybe even like a level of insularity that kind of comes with that. that yeah. I don't My know. My family's if, been here for this many generations. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I admire that as much as I'm used to it. So like it's some weird comfort to me, but like, what is that? What is Maine like, especially from someone who's got a, a, a perspective of not growing up there. Well, I had never been there before I met my husband. So, um, it was a totally new experience for me. What's your husband's name? Jake. Okay. Have you said, no, you said his name yesterday. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but like if I were to classify Mainers into a group, it's like people who are super hardworking. They like appreciate like craftsmanship and a lot of them work with their hands and people figure stuff out and people take care of one another. I think like having a long winter season, at least this has been my experience and I've seen it in other communities that I've photographed in where there are people living mm-hmm. in small main communities. Like you check on your neighbors, <laughs> you know, like if there's a big snowstorm, like I, I had a friend who she was a single woman living on her own and um, we got like six feet of snow and everybody like came over to her house to like shovel. Like legitimately yeah. six feet of snow. Six just feet of snow. Came down until it stopped. Yeah, blizzard. Yeah. Uh huh. How do you, how do you, what happens like when you open your door? There's like six feet of snow. Yeah, it's like a door? drift and you just have to like shovel it out. I mean, that was the craziest thing because in where we lived in, in California, like I grew up in Humboldt County and there wasn't, you could go up to Horse Mountain and Horse Mountain had snow most of the winter. And so you could just kind of like selectively play in snow. You'd like get in the right gear and have your hot chocolate and stuff. But living in snow was totally different for me. And I don't even think I drove like the first winter. I was too scared. And, uh, and now I've learned like studded snow tires and Oh, you guys do snow tires. We do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We do snow tires. Um, but yeah, if I, if I were to classify Maine, like there's so many farmers in Maine, Maine and Vermont are the two states in the entire United States where the average age of the farmer is going down. What are they farming in Maine? All sorts of stuff. I mean, like if you go up to Arista County, it's a huge potato. Um, like all, I think all of Frito-Lay is based in Arista County. Really? Yep. And, uh, and there are a lot of like you know, small scale organic farms, CSAs, a lot of young people getting into farming in Maine, um, Maine Farmland Trust and MOFCA, Maine Organic Farmers and Growers Association, were two organizations that have like really kind of like support the next generation of farmers and like young people and putting them on land and, you know, helping them. Cause it takes, if you're, if you're going into farming totally <laughs> with no kind of background in farming, probably takes like three years to figure out like who's your market, who are your customers, what can you grow on your land? And a lot of people don't have like 
enough money to float that and build the infrastructure and get on land and all of those things. And so Maine has been super supportive. Same with Vermont. Um, and also Maine has more coastline than even California. If you like add up the, the circumference of all of the islands. So it, it is it just like, just like a squiggly line, just in, out, in, out, in, out. Well, and then all this like smattering of islands and the islands are, I mean, I remember the first time I went out on a boat there, I was just like, what is this place? It's like these granite, like granite based islands with all these pine trees. And are they, are they habitated? Um, so there, there are like quite a few that are habitated, but then there are a lot that are like parks basically. So there are all these like kayak routes that you can take basically from Nova Scotia down, like through Maine, you can camp on islands and, I've never done it. And what, you're like in a kayak in the ocean, like yep, following the coastline? Yeah, sea kayak. Mm -hmm. And Dude, you can camp on these That's different... a big bowl of nope for me. <laughs> I know. You said you felt uncomfortable when you couldn't see like the land. But I think you hug the coast enough that most places, I would imagine that you would see land the whole way, but I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the islands are so beautiful and... I don't know, coming from Northern California, it was actually kind of similar industries, like where I'm from in Arcata, California, it was lumber and crabbing were like the two main industries um, that like are kind of receding a little bit. Now it's more like marijuana, <laughs> legal marijuana. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but in Maine, it's like lobster and and lumber as well and like paper mills. And, and so it just, it like there was a certain part of it that felt really familiar. And, um, the only like tricky part I would say about living in Maine is that they call it vacation land. And yes, winter is eight months long, which for a California girl is like brutal, like March and April. I'm basically, I mean, I look like Shelly Duvall. Like I'm like, is it Shelly Duvall? The one that's like from the shining yeah, the with shining, the eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I look like her <laughs> and I start to like kind of act like her a little bit in like March and April, but then like summer is so pleasant. Like, yes, there are a lot of biting insects and a ton of ticks, but you just like pinch yourself. It's like the perfect temperature. Everything is lush green coming from California. Everything goes golden in the summer, you know, yeah. like it stays like the Shire all through the summer and it's just so beautiful. It smells so good. And I, I coming from a place that didn't really have super definable seasons, there's something that I love about the seasonality about like having, it took probably like five years to kind of start to figure that pace out, but like to reconnect to rhythms of the earth is, <laughs> it's really, really profound. I don't know. My winter is like my creative time where I get a lot of stuff done. And my, my summer is like, just like active and being out and like doing Sounds stuff. like your summer is like, 45 days long it basically i mean i would say that it's like 60 days long and then and then it's like fall and spring on it's fall and spring are like maybe two weeks to a month long how hot does it get there well you know things are changing so there were maybe like a couple of 90 maybe even like 100 degrees days last summer june was really hot um but Overall, like in the summer, like a really nice day would be like 82. And I would say generally it's about like mid 70s in the summer. It's like perfect. And it's not too sweaty and sticky. So I understand like our community swells in the summer. Like I don't go downtown because you can't find a parking spot. Like people are honking. Oh, <laughs> you know really? I mean? It yeah. like really flips. Huh? It flips. I mean, you showed me the Arkansas. Oh, the duck, duck, race. duck boat races. <laughs> and I was like, that feels like summer in Maine. It's like July 4th. Everybody's just like everyone from New Jersey and Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York. Everyone just like comes to Maine. There are like a million cars with canoes on top. And um, it's great because that's what supports the economy there. And, you know, we it's a social time of year, but also most of my friends, like that's the time they work the hardest because it's like when all the people are there. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in the winter, it's like, oh, you just get to like focus on the projects that you love and take a deep breath and you kind of hunker down. Yeah. And you hunker down. And I, and I love that, but yeah, March and April rough. Dude, that would, 
That would that would be. I think that would get to be. I want to say it'd get to be difficult. I mean, it would def it would absolutely be an adjustment to deal with that much kind of dark. And you were saying it'd be like dark at three thirty, right? Three thirty four. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you like. <laughs> I I'm gonna butcher the name of this like hiji or it's like the Norwegian name for cozy and it's associated with it's spelled h-y-g-g-e but I'm, I won't be able to say it correctly but you know it's like bringing lights inside in the winter and like having cozy fires and like drinking sure. warm drinks and like having soup like all of those are really rituals of the winter that help you get through it and I never really like thought of that but it helps so much like we, I, I put lights up all over and we like always plug them in and as soon as it gets dark and, but it is hard. It's hard with a daughter, you know, <laughs> cause like in the, in the winter, it's super easy to get her to go to bed. And then in the summer at like 9 PM, I'm like, please go to bed. She's like, it's not light out. <laughs> it's still light out. Yeah. It's not, is it, is it nighttime daddy? That's what Eloise says to me. Is it nighttime daddy? I was like, it's your nighttime. Yeah. You're going to bed. <laughs> try to block out all the windows you know but she's smart she's figured it out now so that shifts too yeah i'm real i'm i'm really and i'm not quite sure why but i'm really interested in the place and i told you like i've i've had like little to no dealings with the northeast i mean it's i've kind of done a drive i was gonna say drive by i've done a drive through <laughs> just in new york city got on a plane and went to ireland flew back did the same sort of deal out of there but yeah, I haven't spent any time up there. It seems there's a – it's not even antiquity, right? We're just talking about a few hundred years. But do you ever watch Antiques Roadshow? Yeah. So, you know, Antiques Roadshow came to Little Rock one time. And it's – I mean, it was still cool or whatever, but the stuff they find – you know, up in like Maine and whatever, it's like really wild. This is Paul Revere's, you know, spittoon. This is George Washington's slave teeth, whatever they are, right? <laughs> uh, just things that have been there for hundreds of years, like well established. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to get up there and hang out. I will be there next spring. You're welcome. Anytime. Helping you with your turkeys. Please take care of our turkey The turkeys that are attacking you and your family to save you. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, I you know I'm trying to remember. I guess I didn't really see a lot of animals before I started hunting. You know, like I wasn't really exposed to tons of wildlife. So I'm trying to. I don't have a frame of reference for like regular encounters with wildlife without thinking about how, like, I was going to eat them sometimes, you know? <laughs> so, like, what is your relationship with those turkeys? I mean, they're there most mornings. They're just, like, filling the fields. I will say turkeys are really great with ticks. Like, they aren't as good as a guinea hen. Like, a guinea hen eats a lot of ticks. But, tick, hey, man, but you don't want guineas in no, your No, they're so noisy. But, uh, but turkeys still eat ticks. And uh, I don't know. We, I think there are wild turkeys in Northern California, but I never saw them. There are. Yeah. I've. Did you? I've been there. <laughs> yeah. They're. Uh, actually, where you're from is maybe not as thick of a population. Wet. Yeah. <laughs> they get. They're They're definitely thicker down uh, like in wine country. Mm -hmm. uh, but no. I think like Nevada City and stuff, maybe they'd have wild turkeys there. It's like kind of dry. It feels more like they're. Yeah. You know what's happening? I'll tell you what's, what's happening internally. I don't even want to say where I'm going and hunting. Maybe I have said it, but I'm being like, I don't want too many people to know about the good places to go because then they'll they'll start going there and then it won't be as good for me. And I feel I feel it in myself like I want to I want to clam up. Like I told you, like where I took you fishing, I was like, dude, don't take pictures of these any of these signs around here. Uh, yeah, I just don't. I mean, it's the same as mushroom foraging. Like, yeah, yeah, you have to be protective of your spots. <laughs> Yeah, I told you I heard that story about that guy that he uh, he took his pastor hunting and the, the pastor went back like without this guy's permission and like took some people and the man felt so betrayed and like could no longer 
trust the character of the pastor that he left the church. It's a big deal. I totally get it. I feel like in that scenario, I would do the same thing. I mean, I'd, I'd end a friendship over it. Oh, did I just really say that? Yeah, I might. I think I might. <laughs> I think I think I might. Something like that. Because that's... Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't trust the character of the person anymore. It's like they're cheating, and then they're bringing other people into your spot to kind of... Yeah, I'm, I don't mean cheating, like, legally. I mean... You're you're breaking like friend code or bro code or whatever, right? Did they? Did you? Did the guy tell him like you aren't allowed to tell anybody about this guy? Okay, so Is that that, that's hunting etiquette. You shouldn't even have to say that to somebody. Okay, but this is because I don't hunt. Yeah, these are the you, questions I I, you, ask. I will usually say that to somebody like, "Hey, man, I'd really, really it goes more like this. Hey, man, I'd really." I'll take you to this place, but like if you're going to come back here or you want to come back here, like I'd appreciate if you gave me a call and, you know, told me you were thinking about going there or made sure I wasn't going to be in there or whatever. And absolutely don't you ever bring anybody else here. I think that's what I would say to somebody. <laughs> and so someone going in there without just checking with you first and then exposing it. Cause see, then it's, it's like a secret, right? Like one person finds it out spreads. about it and it spreads and it spreads yeah. and then people will use it. I've even seen it like people will get information about a place that they know they won't go to. So they real loose lipped about it so that uh, they can kind of, it seems like they're in the know, right? They can gain some sort of status off of it. Yeah. And then they're just blowing up somebody, somebody's spot and you're just like, oh, dude, this stuff is so hard to find. And especially with Google Earth, I mean, there's two sides to Google Earth, right? Like, it's a great tool for scouting. It's also a great tool for scouting, so everybody else is doing the same thing, like That's sitting so in their office, right? They're, you're looking at, you know, or go to Onyx Maps, which is an uh, application. And it, you can have, like, a Google Earth video, and then you can, like, hit a button, switch over to topography. So then you're not just looking down on a flat thing. You can see how it's like rolling hills because something might look really cool. And then you like show up and you're like, Oh, this is a, over the course of 600 feet, this thing drops 800 feet in elevation, which <laughs> <laughs> means you're just might like, be kind of hard to carry. Yeah. Carry gear back gear. through. <laughs> might be hard to get down. Yeah. You know, like how are you going to climb down that? Maybe that's like a sheer cliff. So, yeah, no, there's a there's tons of kind of etiquette involved in it, but I think mostly it's just all of it, hunting, like when we were talking about like setting up too close to somebody in a duck hole or going back to a spot someone introduced you to, this is kind of just all like basic decency and, and uh, just like good manners, like golden rule stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'll be real with you. I'm, I'm so beat down and tired right now. Me like. Too. I think this might be a good point to wrap it up and maybe we'll have a follow-up when we're eating fried turkey next year. Yeah. But dude, such a pleasure to meet you. I, I just have like the absolute best wishes. I hope this, uh, it's like film project works out and everything goes the way you want it to. And, uh, yeah, just real pleasure. Super stoked. You came down here and hung out and I hope you have a great, what do you get? Like, 19 days of summer left up there in Maine, so I hope you have a good 19 days. I know. It was really hard to leave Maine for nine days. This was a huge, this was a big deal. Yeah, well, you're going to appreciate that Maine weather after you're like, tell tell Jake, man, I was in the devil's grundle <laughs> down there in the Arkansas Bayou. Yeah. Well, I just want to say that um, I really want to thank you a bunch, and you are you are the real deal. You are just a true renaissance man and have done everything and know everything. And it's just been so fun. And you've been so kind and generous with us and teaching us things. And yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, that's nice for you to say. Thanks a bunch. And, uh, thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time. Hey, thank you so much for listening all the way through to this episode of the black duck revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. 
as always, follow me on Instagram. Check out the website. Black Duck Revival will take you to all things Black Duck Revival. And I did want to give the podcast listeners a little bit of a heads up. It's been a eventful last few months trying to figure out how we're going to do the waterfowl dates this year. Uh, I'm going a slightly different direction this year than I have in the past as far as accessing land. Uh, and I also, you know, am kind of happy to announce that I've got another child coming right smack in the middle of waterfowl season. So kind of had to figure out uh, how to put my dates in there and still offer hunts while, you know... <laughs> <laughs> not missing the birth of my son. So uh, I did want to give you guys a heads up. We'll release these dates next week. But uh, just as like a thank you to the podcast listeners, if you're interested in coming through, I wanted you to know about the dates uh, before they happened. And so it's going to be two weekends. One is going to be the weekend of December 30th. So that'll be, you know, you're there the 30th, uh, the 31st and the 1st of January. Great way to ring in the new year. Should be a fantastic time for hunting. We'll be targeting speckle belly geese. And I'm also happy to announce that Arkansas has raised the limit on speckle bellies. Uh, you know, a few years ago and for a long time, it had been three birds a day. And then they kind of made a, in my opinion, ill-informed switch to two birds a day. And now they are back to three birds a day. So, uh, 50% raise in uh, speckle belly limits, so that's a that's a good thing. But yeah, so we're going to have uh, the first two dates are going to be that weekend of December 30th, and then also earlier, we're going to do a little bit of uh, early season hunting, and we will do uh, the weekend of November 4th. So that'll be November 4th, 5th, and 6th for speckle belly geese. Also, incidental snow geese and Ross's geese are part of that. And then also the weekend of December 30th. So that'll be December 30th, 31st, and the 1st of January. Come on down to Black Duck Revival. We'll hunt specks. We'll hunt snows and rosses. We'll eat fantastic meals. We'll go over uh, a multitude of ways of processing your birds. And uh, we can do specialty stuff too. I've, I've, after a few years here, you know, I've, I feel like I've kind of got this whole orchestration pretty dialed so uh i'm looking forward to this year i'm looking forward to seeing new folks and uh hopefully even some more return customers and like i said those dates will go live next week but i did want to give uh, a heads up to the podcast listeners and we'll have we'll have some more dates as well but uh we're probably only going to do <clears throat> about a half a dozen weekends in arkansas this year i've got some traveling to do uh, and some other projects to work on so and then I'm pretty much going to take the month of December off, uh, you know, just to be uh, a dad and be at home and stuff. So kind of small scale on the waterfowl hunts this year, but we'll go for quality over quantity anytime. So, uh, yeah, tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies about the podcast. Tell your acquaintances. Help us spread the word. And if you, if you or anybody you know is interested in coming down for uh, one of the waterfowl school weekends, let them know that dates are about to be live and uh, we'll be taking deposits on those hunts. All right. So we will see you guys next time. We're back on schedule with the podcast next Tuesday. We'll have a new one until then.